far more terrifying things come from Japan than just tentacles. This world is a strange one. Japan has a very unique culture, but I can nearly describe it to you in two words, beautiful and bizarre. As such, it has a mythology filled with terrifying stories and creatures. From the slit-mouthed woman that murders people on the streets to the giant sea phantom known as the Ningen, you'll find plenty of things to be scared of if you visit Japan. So let's take a look at some allegedly true stories from Japan or from the view of someone from this creepy cool country. But first, School is unfortunately almost back in session, so I'm looking to read your back to school scary stories. If you've got one, send it to me at deathbyfear.com or darknessprevails.org. Thank you. Now, you don't have to speak the language to understand the fear. Number one, a haunted high school in Japan, submitted by Joseph E. When I was 17, I left my Northern European country to go to Japan as an exchange student. I hadn't really traveled much, so when I landed in Tokyo, it was a shock. It wasn't so much like another country as another planet. It was so big and futuristic, it's really no joke that the movie Blade Runner looks like it's set in the real modern day Tokyo. I was awestruck and I still feel very lucky to this day to have experienced all of that. Well, we exchange students from all over the world got assigned host families around the country and after a week, we were shipped off to our final destinations. I was shipped off to the most Northern Japanese island, Hokkaido, and the largest city there, a sort of mini version of Tokyo, Sapporo, my first homestay family consisted of a submissive mother, two sons in their teens, and a violent drunkard of a father. I honestly don't know how the organization let me stay with people like these. Well, they paid the family 4,000 euros for taking me in, and it only made the situation worse, and it didn't do anything to resolve the situation because they wanted to save face. They didn't want to admit that they'd done an awful job interviewing these people before letting them take care of a young person who was seemingly millions of miles away from home. By some magic, a scholarship for a high school in a smaller town that I'd previously applied for was granted and I could finally escape. The smaller school was a Buddhist school and we had morning prayer every day in our classrooms. We also, on some occasions, assembled in the gymnasium where a Buddhist priest would sometimes sing or should I say mumble loudly, Buddhist mantras. To me, coming from a secular country, it felt a little eerie, like I was being sucked into a cult. But I later realized it wasn't that bad, and it actually added to the certain mystique that this school had. At that age, I was still very much discovering myself, and there was so much to discover in this world. Anyway, in my class, I had some very rowdy boys that were on the baseball team. They were who I hung out with and sat with at the assembly. One boy I remember was always flirting with me and showing me his abs. I thought it was funny more than anything, but being a guy myself, 
my newly found fondness of being flirted with by another boy came with feelings of both excitement and disbelief. Well, the awkward joys of this new school did not last long. I need to say here that the whole school exuded a sort of rundown, aged mystique. The corridors were usually a bit dark. Each door was wooden and worn out. The exact vibe it gave off was hard to describe, but it brings to mind all of the ghost stories Japan can be known for. I began getting really anxious whenever I was alone in those hallways, or even with only a few friends in the gymnasium. The feeling grew and grew until that day in the assembly. Yeah, one day we had an assembly in the auditorium where one of the teachers was talking about new school activities. Well, overlooking the assembly were two rooms, rooms you can only get to by climbing a long winding set of stairs at the side of the stage. Suddenly, while I was sitting there with my friends, I had a very intense feeling of someone watching me. So I looked around and everything seemed perfectly normal. The teacher was at the pulpit, talking about whatever he was talking about, and the students were dutifully listening. My eyes were drawn to the two rooms high above the stage, and I swear I could almost see someone there, staring back at me. There I was, surrounded by hundreds of people, and I was filled with a lonely and eerie ghostly feeling, like some lost souls were watching me intently. I felt a loneliness, a disappointment, and anger, it was like someone was in my ear whispering, you left us here, you forgot about us. I tried to ignore it, but the feeling only grew. There were people in those rooms that weren't allowed to come out. I looked closer, squinting my eyes, and then I saw them. I saw them with my heart and soul and with my eyes. There were dozens of children in those rooms, all looking out at me from the windows. They were frowning, and they looked very angry and sad. Several of them up front had their hands on the glass, and there seemed to be some sort of mist about them. Immediately, I rubbed my eyes and looked back. They were still there, but they were growing more faint by the second, as if somehow I was getting more distant from them. And in a few moments, they disappeared entirely. I couldn't believe what I had just seen. I asked a few friends around me if they saw that, but they just looked at me weird for interrupting the assembly. For the rest of my time sitting there, I just stared into that window of the room, waiting for those ghostly children to come back at any second, but they didn't come back that day. Yet I did see them on two other occasions. After each sighting of these children, I always felt more and more like something was decisively wrong in this part of the school. Something happened here, something terrible. For weeks, I tried to forget about it, but in the end, I asked a teacher if something had harmed students here, if there was some sort of tragedy. He finally admitted that part of the school had burned down not too long ago, that some students had died in the fire. I just nodded, walked away, thinking to myself that that would make perfect sense as to what I was seeing. Number two, Creepy Girl, submitted by I Love Cake. I'm 18 and live in Japan. I used to go to a small high school where we had to wear high school uniforms with those short skirts. I was a very dumb and naive teenager in high school, and even my friends here would call me a dumb blonde. Anyway, 
While I was there, there was this one girl. Her name was Sarah. Sarah usually sat alone at lunch, and I heard lots of rumors saying she took pictures of people's underwear and other stuff like that. I didn't want to believe the rumor. I thought that she was just a victim of crowd bullying, that she was their lightning rod for all their insults. Well, that's what I thought until one day. I was talking to some friends at lunch, and we were walking down a hallway. It took me a while to realize that someone was watching me. I turned around and I saw Sarah who was walking down the hallway as well. As soon as I turned and looked at her, she blushed and looked away. I felt bad for the girl. Anyway, my friends were in different classes as me, so after lunch we said our goodbyes and I headed off to my class. As I walked there, I felt someone's hand on my shoulder and I turned around and there was Sarah again. She wore this nervous smile and she stared at me. It got awkward fast, so I said hello. She quickly said that she wanted to show me something. I had a bit of extra time before class, and I felt genuinely bad for this girl, so I said okay. She grabbed my hand and led me to a supply closet, which I was sure we weren't supposed to be in. Like I said, I was very dumb and naive back then, so instead of running out of there and telling someone, I asked her curiously what she wanted to show me. But before I even had the question out, she pushed her face into mine, kissing me hard. Taken off guard, I immediately pushed her back and tried to get out of the closet, but Sarah yanked me back in. She locked the door with a key. I have no idea how she got. I didn't know what to do when I could barely speak at all. Sarah told me to stay still as she took out her phone, and then she began to take pictures up my skirt. I was screaming to anyone that would listen outside, and I was trying to kick her away. Finally, one of the teachers heard me, because a few minutes later, the door finally opened from the outside. We both were sent to the principal's office, and I told her everything that had happened, yet Sarah denied it. I told her about the pictures Sarah took, and thankfully, they took Sarah's phone and saw everything. Needless to say, I never saw Sarah again, which is fine by me, Someone as creepy, awkward, and impulsive as her is bound to do something dangerous to some stranger on the street. I can only imagine she's in prison somewhere as we speak. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Do you believe in monsters? And given the chance, would you be brave enough to track one down on your own? In June's Journey, people are the true monsters and you can live the story yourself rather than sitting back and listening to one. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? 
Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Number 3. Train Station Traffickers Submitted by Sophia I was studying abroad in Japan a couple of years back. I was about 18 years old at the time and could speak very little Japanese. I had a two hour trip every day that required trains to get to. They took me to my language classes that were based in Shinjuku. Usually, me and another student from my language class could walk to the station together or even ride halfway back to my host's house on one of the trains, but that day I had to go shopping before returning home. I had a small bag with me that securely held my train pass and wallet. I didn't have to worry about them falling out. In the train station, there are checkpoints where you need to scan your train pass to get through. I walked up to the first checkpoint and I looked in my bag for my train pass and it wasn't there. I was a bit confused, but I assumed that I left it back at school, which was a half hour walk from my current position. I began to head back as calmly as possible when this stranger suddenly jumped in front of me asking if I was all right and if I needed anything. It was a man. I was startled because I thought I'd kept a pretty calm demeanor and also by the fact that he spoke English. The man was a bit shorter than me. I was five foot 10. He had a dark skin tone and a heavy Middle Eastern accent. I was about to deny I needed help when I remembered my phone didn't have service and I should call my chaperone that was still at the school. So I asked if I could borrow his phone and he quickly handed it to me smiling. At this point, my spidey senses were tingling and I had a sudden urge of needing to get away from him, away from this weird situation or vomit. The phone that I was handed was a very cheap phone that looked brand new. I quickly dialed my chaperone's phone number. While talking with my chaperone, I kept a close eye on the man that was now beside me. While I was explaining to my chaperone the situation, I heard someone cough behind me. I turned my head slightly to see another man that looked similar to the first, standing only a few feet away, uncomfortably close. I bowed my head in his direction to let him know that I knew he was there. The man that had given me the phone quickly shooed the guy away. This happened multiple times during my phone call, each time the stranger man getting shooed away I had a feeling that it was a mixture of panic and confusion. My chaperone ended the call by saying, I'll meet you out front of the school. And then I hung up. I quickly gave the man back his phone and tried to think of something to say that would get me out of this situation. So I lied, saying that my chaperone was outside waiting for me. I watched as the man's face morphed from this fake smile into an angry expression. He then very threateningly told me to give him all the money I had on me. I didn't want to upset this guy even more. So I gave the guy the thousand yen I had on me and started to walk away when he said, good luck on your journey. The way he said it gave me chills. I looked behind me to see three other Middle Eastern looking men standing with him. Then I quickly hurried back to the school where I explained what happened to my chaperone. She informed me that that was a common place for human traffickers to pick up alone and naive girls. She then told me to never trust strangers so quickly. Little did I know that the scariest moment was yet to come. About a week later, 
I was walking by a convenience store when someone stopped in the middle of the sidewalk in front of me. I quickly walked past, but as I did, I heard a male voice with a familiar Middle Eastern accent say, good luck on your journey, Sophia. And number four, The Rooting Man, submitted by Sakura. When I was 12 years old, my mother had been talking to a man through the mail. He was an American named David. Soon enough, he began to come to Japan to see me and my mom. He would come for a month or two at a time. This happened for about two years. Then we moved to America with him. I was almost 14 and my English was terrible. I had a very thick accent at the time. Soon we were living in a nice house deep in the woods with David. It was so different from Osaka where I used to live. Before I could get signed into my new school, I tore my ACL playing in the woods. After surgery and physical therapy, I enrolled into my new school a bit late. And let me tell you that things did not go well. My first day was in December and I wore my usual clothes that I was used to. I showed up in my dark blue winter fuku. That's a sailor schoolgirl uniform. That combined with my accent, I was picked on a lot. I spent a lot of my time alone at school, but I tried to keep myself busy. I found a card game I never heard of, Magic the Gathering. I would take two decks to school with me and I would play by myself. When I turned 15, I got into high school. One day during our lunch hour, I was once again playing Magic by myself. A short boy a year ahead of me and his brother, let's call them James and Luke respectively, they began to talk to me. For a couple of months, the three of us would play magic together at lunch. Me and James began dating. After some convincing, I talked my mom and stepdad into letting James and Luke come over. That weekend, they came over and Luke brought his girlfriend too. Let's call her Nikki. That night went very well. We were allowed to explore the woods or whatever we wanted. The four of us began traveling up an old overgrown dirt road that began about 20 meters away from my house. I'd only been about half a kilometer up the road before. There was a lovely creek that ran under the overgrown road. I spent a lot of time there. We get to the creek and just chill for a bit. Then Luke's eyes start following the rest of the road up a steep hill. I'd never gone that far. I'd tried before, but it hurt my injured knee too much going up a hill that steep. Luke asked about it, and I told him I've never been up there. James asked if we could go up, and I said we could, but my knee wouldn't allow it. So James smiles at me and kneels down, then gives me a piggyback ride, and together like that, we all begin to go up the hill. It takes us about half an hour that way, but we do get to the top. Once there, we find an old 60s or 70s trailer hitch camper, overgrown with plants, the boys began to tear away at the vines. The trailer underneath was in good shape, to my disbelief. We all entered the old camper. Right away, we were hit with this musty smell, but there were places to sit down and we could get used to the smell. We all take a seat and gather round as Luke starts rolling a joint. I sit on the small bed, but there is something under it. I move the thin mattress to see an old rusted shovel Nikki says that that's strange, 
and James throws it out the open door. We stay in there smoking and talking. When we were done and left, it was dark. I'd come down from my high, and even now that we were outside, I could smell something rotten, like something decaying and dead. I asked if anyone else had smelled it. Then we heard what sounded like displaced gravel rolling down the hill behind us. James, Luke, and Nikki turned around, and I had no choice. I was on James' back. About 10 meters away from us stood a man in an old gray, almost rotten raincoat. He took a step forward, and then we saw his face. His face looked like it was rotting, and he had the most evil smile I'd ever seen. James dropped me off his back. I hit the ground hard on my back. I began to roll down the remainder of the rocky hill, and I heard the others take off. When I got to the bottom, I saw the three of them cutting around a curve in the road. They were taking off back to my house. They had left me. I pulled myself up, and I looked up at the hill. No more than about three yards away was that thing. I screamed as loud as I could. It was starting to come closer. I pulled myself up and ran as fast as I could, which was not very fast. I couldn't stop myself from limping. I finally could make out my porch light. I climbed up onto the deck and looked behind me, and there was that man-zombie thing standing at the edge of the light. I grabbed the doorknob tightly and opened the door. No one was there. I locked the door and wrapped a blanket around myself and just cried. I was scared. I felt betrayed. My only friends left me to die. I began to see shadows moving outside the windows. I tried to get up, but my leg quickly gave out to the weakness and pain. I looked out the window closest to me, and I saw that thing looking in. We made eye contact. My heart had been racing before, but now it felt like it had stopped. I couldn't feel the pain in my knee or my bruises. I couldn't even hear my stepdad's grandfather clock ticking, and that thing was loud. After what seemed like hours, the only thing I could feel was something wet and warm forming around me. I'm not afraid to admit that I peed myself. I heard the familiar sound of my stepdad's Jeep. As I stared at the thing, it simply vanished. Soon I heard the door unlock, and my stepdad stepped in. When he saw me, he ran over to me. Before he could ask anything, I jumped up and wrapped my arms around his neck, crying, and for the first time I called him Daddy. All I could say was, Daddy, I'm sorry, I wet my new skirt. He held me, then he called my mom and took me to the emergency room. He assumed the worst. He demanded that they test me to make sure I wasn't assaulted, if you catch my drift. When mom arrived, she questioned me. I told her I would tell them when we got home. Hours later, I was released with a wheelchair, and I knew I would need another surgery on my knee. I had messed up some of my ACL reconstruction, and they would have to fix it. When we got home, I had to tell them what happened. Mom had never believed in the supernatural, but I wasn't sure about my stepdad, and when I told them, my stepdad went pale. When I asked why he looked so scared, he told us that his dad about a year before had passed away, but before he died, he said that he saw something with the same description that I gave. My stepdad said that his dad talked about it until he finally died. I kept seeing the shadows outside the window, 
smelling that dead, rotten thing for about two weeks. And every night I had nightmares. Nightmares so bad that I constantly had to rewash my sheets and blankets. After two weeks of this, my stepdad bought us a new home and we moved away from those deep woods. That was a long time ago. These days I'm married and I have a daughter of my own. My husband is the only other person I've told this story to. To this day, if I smell something rotting, I have to choke down my tears. Then I call my stepdad, who to this very day, I still call daddy. And sometimes I have to confess that I still miss my old home in Japan. You'll never find a country quite like Japan. Most of us have been influenced by its culture whether we know it or not. We've seen Studio Ghibli's outstanding family films. We've seen a multitude of anime memes flooding our social media. And I'm sure most of us here have had a few chills after watching those Japanese horror film remakes, such as The Grudge and The Ring. It makes you wonder, do the real life horrors of Japan ever spill over to where you live? Well, of course they do. So the next time you're walking alone in town, beware the strange woman covering her mouth. If she shows you her face and asks you if you think she's beautiful, don't answer, just run. Good night. Be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe if you enjoyed the video. And don't forget to send us your back to school scary story soon at deathbyfear.com or darknessprevails.org. Thank you.